because I think when you work in food, it gives you this very socially acceptable place to put your obsession. Like when I made it my career, the more I obsessed, the more I succeeded, (laughs) you know, the more I was rewarded and validated, which is really confusing and really tricky. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am thrilled to be chatting with Julia Tertia. Julia is a New York Times bestselling cookbook author. Her latest book, Simply Julia, is a national bestseller. She's written for multiple publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, and more. She is the founder of Equity at the Table, an inclusive digital directory of women and non-binary individuals in food. And she's the host and producer of the podcast, Keep Calm and Cook On, which is where I think a lot of you found me. Julia also sits on the Kitchen Cabinet Advisory Board for the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and is a member of God's Love We Deliver's Culinary Council. She lives in the Hudson Valley, about an hour from me, with her spouse Grace and their pets. And she teaches live cooking classes every Sunday afternoon. So I asked Julia to come on the podcast for a really specific reason. I wanted to talk about a presentation she recently gave at the Culinary Institute of America, which is one of the most prestigious cooking schools in the country, about fat phobia and diet culture in the food industry. But of course, because it's Julia and me and we're very chatty together, we get into so much more than just this presentation. We talk a lot about perfectionism. We talk about eating disorder recovery. We talk about rejecting expectations and how we cook and eat and why that is particularly challenging for people who work in food, but also those of us who work in media and publishing in general. It is a really great conversation. I'm so excited for you to hear it. I will note that for a little while, Julia's dogs felt very passionately about the conversation and wanted to join in or possibly had just seen another dog in their yard and felt very passionately about that. So you will hear a little bit of doggy background noise for which we apologize. But also this whole conversation is about showing up authentically and unapologetically and not holding ourselves to unrealistic standards and dogs are gonna bark. So here is the utterly fantastic Julia, but first a quick break. Okay, it's time to read another of your five-star reviews. This one comes from Ducky HNJS. The title is Favorite Regular Listen. Breaking down diet culture but funny? Don't know how to describe it, but I love hearing from Virginia every week. It's especially great if you're looking to change how you think about food in your body without judgment or pretending that you don't still live in a world saturated with messaging about how our bodies should look. Yes, thank you, Ducky. And to everyone writing reviews, I so appreciate hearing from you. This is absolutely key for helping folks discover the show in their podcast players. So please rate and review the episode. Make sure you are subscribed for free in your podcast player to get more episodes. And if you'd like to do even more to support the show, make sure you're signed up for the Burnt Toast newsletter and consider a paid subscription. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Hi, Julia. Thank you for being here. It is such a pleasure. I'm so happy to talk to you. I am so happy as well as we've just been chatting and chatting before we even officially started. (laughs) But now we will officially start. So I am a huge fan of your work. I know my listeners are a huge fan of yours. 
today I wanted you to come on specifically to talk about this talk you just did at the Culinary Institute. Because when I saw you post about it on Instagram, I just thought, yes, these are so many dots that need to be connected Mm -hmm. between fat phobia and the food industry. So for starters, I would just love to hear, you know, how did this come about? Were they open to having this conversation? Or did you have to kind of come in and say, like, we need to have this conversation? Great question. Yeah, this conversation was so meaningful. And the origins of it, I guess, are a little bit funny, which is I heard from a professor at the Culinary Institute in probably maybe like January 2020, something like that, asking if I would come speak to the students, part of like a speaker series, if I remember correctly. We set a date for spring 2020. Obviously, that didn't happen. And I kind of forgot about it. You know, the past few years have been a whirlwind. The past few years, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, yeah, a few months ago, I heard from her again, kind of reinviting me to campus. It was a very surreal, like, email chain to look through. (laughs) Like, our last emails were just like, good luck. (laughs) Like, hold on tight. (laughs) And so, yeah, when she reinvited me, I realized that there was an opportunity to speak to this group of students who are all, for the most part, not uh, exclusively, but for the most part, are really young. Like, a lot of them are just out of high school. And I thought this would be a really great opportunity to do what you said, to connect some of the dots between fat phobia and the food industry, because I think, and I know we'll talk about this, I think it's incredibly prevalent, as it is in every part of our society, but prevalent in a very interesting and I think very kind of sticky way in the food industry. And just personally, it's something I've been untangling myself from. A lot of my, not just work, but like my life has changed a lot in the few years, and a big part of that is just rejecting diet culture, taking accountability for how I participated in it, realizing just how much I struggled in it, which is sort of clearer, I think, to see when you're a little bit more out of it. So I thought this was the thing that felt most important to me right now. And if I was going to accept this, you know, very kind invitation, I wanted to talk about the thing that felt most important to me and the thing that I thought could potentially be really helpful for the students. So the original topic, which we talked about, you know, years ago was like a broader topic, just sort of like how food can help build community, which it absolutely can. (laughs) That's super important. I'm happy to talk about that. But this just felt a little bit more pressing to me right now. So I replied to her email and basically said what I just said to you. And honestly, there was no pushback. She was like, we haven't had anyone talk about this. We would welcome it. And for that, I'm really grateful. I felt like a little bit kind of surprised. I was sort of ready to make my argument for why this was important, but I didn't have to, which was awesome. I was fully envisioning that this might have been something you had to really push for or make a case for. But I do often find, and I'm sure you're experiencing this as well, is once you bring up this topic, there's often a little bit of a sigh of relief where other people are like, Yes. Can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like you're you're naming something that they've already been thinking about. I think so. And I think just for a bit more context, too, I mean, I don't know the inner workings of the CIA, meaning the Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> I definitely don't know the inner workings <laughs> of the other CIA. But this was uh, basically two professors I was in touch with who um, I will just name because they were great to work with, Dr. Willa Zen and Dr. Anne Henry. They were both great. 
I'm trying to be mindful of how I talk about the CIA. I don't like, again, know it very well, but it strikes me as a pretty conservative institution. Mm -hmm. So I was ready to defend what I think was a pretty like critical talk about just conservative institutions in general. But yeah, no one asked to see any notes or anything. And I just figured if they're not asking, I'm not going to volunteer it. And (laughs) so, yeah, that's how that went. And so in the talk, you articulate something that I have certainly noticed anecdotally for years, it's something I kind of looked at when I was reporting my first book, this thing where people who work in food and or are obsessed with food more recreationally are often also struggling with food. So let's break that down. Yeah, for me personally, I had what I thought was a weird relationship to food for my entire life. It's what I now understand to be just like a decades-long eating disorder. I didn't quite have the vocabulary to express that at the time. And that developed for a number of reasons. A few include the water we all swim in, just the diet culture we all live in, a lot to do with my upbringing, a lot to do with what was modeled by a lot of adults in my life. But it was very much reinforced by the fact that I have spent my whole professional life working in food, specifically cookbooks. So, you know, I've made my career out of measuring food down to like the teaspoon, (laughs) Um, having the sense of control over food. Like, here's how you make this thing. (laughs) Like, here's a recipe. So I think a lot of what I was seeking in my life as someone who's lived with an eating disorder for a long time is just control. I was feeling really out of control. So my career as a cookbook author offered that to me. And I've been thinking so much about that, especially as I've, for the first time in my adult life, have taken a step back from working on cookbooks, just thinking about what, you know, what that was all about. And the more I do that and the more I talk to other people, the more I see exactly what you're saying, just how prevalent this is and how it shows up in so many ways. Because the food industry, that's like a huge umbrella term. Like there's so many industries within it. So there's you know, the restaurant industry, there's the cookbook industry, there's just food media at large, there's farming, agriculture, you know, all the things that go into food. Um, and, you know, eating disorders, disordered eating, fat phobia, anti-fat bias, like the stuff is everywhere. And it definitely shows up for people who work in food, because I think when you work in food, it gives you this very socially acceptable place to put your obsession. Like when I made it my career, the more I obsessed, the more I succeeded, (laughs) you know, the more I was rewarded and validated, which is really confusing and really tricky, especially when so much of this just really like harmful stuff goes unspoken. Like I wouldn't be able to be having the conversation I'm having with you if I didn't talk to anyone about this stuff. Like I needed to open up to people about it and talk about it in order to get through it. So I think those conversations just don't really happen. And it's this just unacknowledged thing. It's making me think about lifestyle and food media where there's so much pressure to execute these really sort of perfectionistic images of what meals are supposed to be. And that, of course, just the pressure to do that is going to feed into the eating disorder. But then also the sort of praise and the success you get from doing that. And it just feels like there's a lot of layers there. These are types of media you know, whether it's sort of lifestyle magazines, cookbooks, on and on, social media. You know, so many people consume this media, but it's not held to the same kind of journalistic, 
I would say, like standards or rigor as other types of media, especially types of media that include things about people's health and their bodies and the things that we put into our bodies. All of this information is shared in this, like, you know, anything kind of goes way. And I enjoy the sort of like freedom of expression, (laughs) but I think there's also something pretty like dangerous about that. Like the stuff doesn't get fact-checked. And right. I'm right. not just talking about like someone's Instagram posts. Like big national publications will often publish things that are false <laughs> because things about food, things about quote-unquote lifestyle are seen as like not really counting. Like they're mm-hmm. not serious. They're not real. So a lot gets just kind of slipped in and that <laughs> ends up really, like, hurting people, you know, when just talking about, like, oh, eat this thing because it's better for you. It's like, better for who? What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, better how. Certainly you see this in how recipes are tagged or marketed, you know, like sugar-free or lower sugar. These sort of buzzword concepts that Mm -hmm. don't really have specific meanings and are just sort of resting on a premise that nobody's questioning, that obviously you should only eat in order to pursue or maintain thinness and thinness equals health. And there's just like this whole mess of assumptions there underpinning that whole conversation. Did you feel earlier on in your career or at various points in your career, like you had to participate in that? How did you kind of navigate that, especially prior to where you are now of really doing all this hard work? Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking because I think a big part of I guess the work I'm doing now, both professionally and personally, is just holding myself accountable for work I've done in the past. So I feel like the way you phrase that, like, did I feel like I had to kind of do that? I think that's generous of you (laughs) to phrase it that way, because I think I definitely did. I mean, I absolutely participated in, you know, just in diet culture and in putting it into food media. And I did that not because I felt like I had to. I don't think I knew there was another choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was like so in it that I didn't know there was an alternative. So I wasn't doing it, you know, in spite of knowing <laughs> that there were other options. It was sort of all I knew. Again, it's what I was raised in. It was what I was surrounded by. But I also take total responsibility for not questioning, you know, those systems. and. Yeah, I think a lot of that work, just to be quite frank, I think it caused harm, you know, for myself included. So I think for me, the question is not so much like, did I feel like I had to do it? I think it's more like, how did I realize there was like another option? Right, right. Well, you're talking to someone who wrote diet stories for women's media. We're all trying to take accountability for previous harm here. Yeah. Yeah. What was the sort of turning point for you or when did you start to connect these dots? So I always wish that there was just like a tidy story. What neat little (laughs) moments. Yeah. But it was a buildup of many moments. And I would say the biggest turning point that kind of inspired all those small moments was meeting Grace, who I am now so happily married to. Grace and I fell in love nearly a decade ago, and Grace was in a relationship with someone who hated her body. You know, that was me. And I think that was really challenging. And Grace has spoken about the following openly, so totally cool to share. But Grace has a history also of, like, having a pretty 
challenging eating disorder. I don't know why I gave it that adjective. I think all eating disorders are challenging. (laughs) As opposed to those really easy ones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can't speak for Grace, but I think I came into Grace's life as, you know, a positive thing, but also like as a huge trigger. And that just sucked. And it was a lot for us to work through because, again, I just didn't see an alternative. And for a really, really long time, Grace just kept telling me that there was a version of my life that was possible where I didn't hate my body. And it just took me a while to actually believe that and then to work towards that. Um, So I would say that was like my biggest turning point. But yeah, the rest has been a lot of small moments some of which include honestly just feeling really tired, (laughs) you know, having any type of eating disorder. It's exhausting Mm -hmm. (laughs) to try and just have that much control over something you ultimately don't have that much control over. It was exhausting for me to spend that much mental and physical energy trying to change the size of my body. So I got to a point where honestly I was just really sleepy (laughs) and just wanted to be a bit more awake, I guess. I mean, there's like a million little details, but I think the biggest turning point was really, was grace and just that encouragement. And also having that incredibly safe and supportive just partner and home Mm -hmm. (laughs) and kind of place to land. Because I think navigating this stuff is really hard. And it's, I mean, it's definitely one of the hardest things I've done. And for me, a big thing is just, I get so angry and sad when I think about how much time Mm -hmm. I spent when I could have been doing so many other things, including taking a nap. Right. (laughs) Right. So much, you know, creating something. Yeah. Like I think about how much creative work is lost to just all sorts of mental health struggles that aren't supported, including eating disorders. It just makes me so sad. Like, I think about how many, you know, songs we'll never right. hear, you know, that kind right. of thing. So, you know, yeah. I think about that, too. You know, in writing, I think about, you know, books not getting written and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. I also want to shout out the episode you did of your podcast a few months back with a conversation with Grace, mm-hmm. where you talked about all of this together. It is The most beautiful conversation, I mean, I think I cried three or four times listening to it. (laughs) It's just, you know, obviously the relationship you have is beautiful, but the compassion that they showed for you, the way that you were able to talk about, it's just a masterclass in communication with Mm. a partner as well, even sort of above and beyond the topic. It was really special to hear and to witness because it just gives you such a sense of what's possible with recovery, I think. And then the place that you're in, I think for folks who are earlier in the recovery journey, you know, it can feel like, well, I'll never get there. Or what does that even look like? You know, what would it even look like not to be active in my eating disorder? Because you haven't done it and you can't imagine it. And so... Yeah, I loved that conversation yeah, for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It was really um, great to have that conversation and be able to share it. I want to talk a little more about perfectionism and also urgency. These were two big themes in the talk you did for the Culinary Institute. And it's also something we talked about quite a bit when I was on your podcast. I like how we're doing this like crossover <laughs> appearance, like like 90s sitcom. <laughs> if you like this, yeah. you might also like <laughs> This week, it's like, yeah, back when like the Buffy and Angel characters would like show up on each other's episodes. Anyway, but we talked about the intersection of diet culture and workaholism. Um, you had some specific examples in the talk about how these themes show up in the food world that I just thought would be really interesting to talk more about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
I love talking about perfectionism (laughs) because (laughs) I definitely describe myself as like a recovering perfectionist. I wouldn't say I'm on like the other side of it. It's something I have to just keep working through. But I think for me, you know, this also ties into your last question, kind of like the turning point moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, understanding that diet culture comes under the umbrella of white supremacy and comes under the umbrella of patriarchy and capitalism. That has also been like a really helpful turning point for me. I promise I'll come back to perfectionism. But realizing that it's a system, it's not me. It's not personal. It's not that there's something particularly wrong with me in any direction. It's that, you know, my experiences are influenced by various systems when you sort of like change who the bad guy is, you know, it's just a much more, I think, helpful way of seeing things. So understanding that my just difficulty with my body image throughout my life, my struggles with an eating disorder, understanding that these things were symptoms of a much bigger problem that aren't so personal helps me move my energy towards understanding that as opposed to trying to change myself. So perfectionism comes under this to me. Perfectionism, again, I think is like one of the most, what's the right word? Just like most annoying parts (laughs) of white supremacy. It seeps in in all these different ways. And we see it, you know, in just our personal lives, the social media example, like whether it's a photograph of something you ate or it's a photograph of someone's vacation or the car they're driving, you know, whatever it might be, like this idea that there is more to strive for, like this constant striving, 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 and, you know, feeling like there's only room for one person at the top, that sort of scarcity mentality, that is perfectionism. Feeling like there's a right way to do anything (laughs) is perfectionism. Holding ourselves to these standards. So, yeah, I see perfectionism as a tool of white supremacy to kind of bolster itself. And it's definitely a big tool of fat phobia, of anti-fat bias, and of eating disorders. Eating disorders are such a clear example of perfectionism, like striving to have a certain weight, a certain body, a certain just look, (laughs) whatever it might be, and, you know, doing things to achieve that that are incredibly harmful. Yeah, and then you had some interesting examples of perfectionism in the food industry. I think any time in, like, a food magazine or in a cookbook, again, I'm guilty of this, when you see anything labeled as like the best whatever. Right, (laughs) right. The best roast chicken. Exactly. That was an example I used, like the idea that there's like a best way to roast a chicken. And just thinking about, you know, they're in classes where they're most likely being taught, like, this is the best way to do this. This is the right way to do this. This is the proper way to do this. And you know, there's a lot of ways to cook a chicken. <laughs> and a lot of them are really good. I think it's helpful to think about that there's people all over the world putting a chicken <laughs> or anything they're going to eat into a hot oven, right. pulling it out a little bit later, and they're, <laughs> and they're going to have a good meal. Yeah. And it just it doesn't have to be this complicated. Because often the best is equal to hardest to execute, right? Like has the most steps, has the most, you're making the most components from scratch. This idea that everything has to be made from scratch or be homemade to be better, to be best. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we see it in the restaurant industry, just in the way 
many professional kitchens are structured. I feel like a lot of us have been watching The Bear. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. And just that brigade system that's in place. You know, there's one person at the top. It's a hierarchical system, and perfectionism comes in everywhere. You know, there's a perfect way to make that sandwich. There's a perfect way to make those donuts. And all of that is really seductive. You feel like there's, you know, you have a purpose when you're striving for perfection. And that, in a world that can feel really challenging and (laughs) you can feel really out of control that again yeah it's really seductive to feel like there's a purpose there but I think when we make our purpose perfectionism we're just forever disappointed (laughs) and that just sucks yeah this is such a hard concept for me also as a recovering perfectionist (laughs) because there's a part of me even as you're talking is saying like but but shouldn't we want to work hard I don't even know what voice that is is it my dad I don't know saying like but shouldn't we want to do the best we can at these things and is that so wrong? But I'm also aware there's this cost that comes with it. Yeah. I think it's such a yes and. <laughs> like, I enjoy working hard. I enjoy challenging myself, whether it's like physically or mentally. Like, I do a lot of writing. I also have had experiences like farming. <laughs> like, you know, I think working really hard can feel really good. And I think, at least for me personally, it can make me really happy. I think it's just understanding what's the goal of that? What am I trying to get out of that? What am I trying to prove with that? You know, asking myself these types of questions are really helpful. And again, I think just following those thoughts to understand where they're coming from, it helps me just see those systems. Like, in your question about kind of like perfectionism in the restaurant industry, I think another just great example that many people can identify with just as customers is how, at least in American restaurants, how tipping continues to be the norm. Great example. And, you know, understanding that like the American restaurant kind of system (laughs) is rooted in slavery. It's rooted in unpaid labor. It's rooted in people not making any money for the work they're doing. So tipping comes in in this way that's actually incredibly terrible. Yes. (laughs) I'm not an expert on this by any means. But, you know, I feel like laws are sort of bent to allow people to work incredibly hard and not even make minimum wage because they're entitled to tips, which is Mm -hmm. just this totally instable (laughs) way of living. It also causes like all sorts of tension within communities that work together. You know, not everyone in the restaurant is necessarily like entitled to those same tips. Like it's just, it's really, really awful. It allows the customer to have this power dynamic that is also just terrible. And the way people treat people who work in restaurants can be just so awful. And, you know, you're holding you know, you're, you know, 20% often less (laughs) above people in this way that is just really mean and doesn't really serve anyone. Yeah, it trains us to think that we're allowed to grade people's performance. Even people who I think of, you know, being super liberal, I'll be surprised when I go to dinner with them, how harsh they are if the service isn't absolutely impeccable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how they'll say things like, well, they lost their tip. And like, do you not realize that you're being like so Marie Antoinette in that moment? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like that it's this weird class power thing that you are deciding whether someone's worthy of your, it's really, really creepy. Yeah. It's like archaic. Yeah. 
Bottom line, if you go to restaurants, you need to tip until we actually pay restaurant workers a fair wage. Exactly. You just have to tip well. I don't care how bad the service was. <laughs> it's just, it's the cost of being there. I mean, that's their salary. It's wild. It's completely wild. No, that's a great example. And I'm also thinking how all of this perfectionism and urgency stuff gets in the way of enjoying food for those of us who are just home cooks. Like, this just makes me think about all the pressure I've put on myself over the years for dinner parties to be executed in a certain way, or even just like regular dinner with my family to be executed in a certain way, and how much letting go of that is important and understanding. When it's like, oh, it's a Sunday and I have time to mess around with this soup recipe and that seems like a fun way to spend the afternoon, even if it becomes labor intensive versus I am holding myself to some artificial standard about what our food needs to look like on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that is really harmful to all of us is that it makes it harder to actually like connect with the people you're eating with and to enjoy the company you've, you know, had in your home or, you know, for you, if it's just, you know, with your kids, your husband, whatever it is, because I think when we're holding ourselves to these standards and where we have this idea of perfectionism and urgency, just in our home cooking, when we're reaching for a standard that is just impossible, <laughs> and then we're thinking about all these ways, you know, we could have done it better or things will change next time. You know, every time someone apologizes for not getting it perfect, you are just creating more and more disconnection. You know, it's another chance to just feel isolated, which again, to me, is just a tool of these horrific systems. Okay, my dogs are going crazy. <laughs> um, They're just they joining you. Perfectionism. They hate they perfectionism. Hate it. They hate it. They're speaking up. They want everyone to tip. It's totally fine. I agree I, with them. Imagine there's <laughs> probably a package being left yep, on our door. Yeah. Also, like I'm a floor away, and like the doors closed. They're just like so good at <laughs> making themselves heard. You know, oh, there's yeah. a lesson there. They're very good at making themselves heard. <laughs> they are unafraid to take up space. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, no, it's totally fine. I think we can keep going. I guess I also was curious to talk a little bit about what changes you could see being made in the food industry, mm, whether mm -hmm. that's restaurants or grocery stores or food media, cookbooks, since I know that's more where you've spent your time. You know, what would it look like if we made these spaces fat positive and anti-diet? Like what what would happen? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I have like a few ideas. I'm curious to what you think, but I think in terms of anything that has writing on it, so cookbooks, but also restaurant menus, advertisements for all these things, I think just being aware of our language, because language has a really powerful effect on culture. So just being mindful of the words we use to describe food, you know, when we describe any type of food as like junk or garbage, or on the flip side of that, but equally as, in my opinion, terrible, when we describe food as like clean or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I just think when we're adding these types of like moralizing adjectives to what people are eating I think it would be great if we could stop doing that. Yeah, that would be super. <laughs> I think that would be a great change. There's a lot of ways, honestly, a lot of very easy ways to change stuff. Like it's just, you know, just changing that word would make a really big difference. Or just leaving the word out. <laughs> I think also kind of like 
sort of pseudo-medical terms that don't really mean anything. For example, detox, that kind of thing. I think getting rid of that would be awesome. Yeah, I think physical spaces where food is either like purchased or consumed. I think I've been thinking about this and again, not an expert on this and a lot of people are and pay more attention to this than I do. But in my just kind of like observer opinion, I think a lot of decisions are made that makes spaces, physical spaces, incredibly fat phobic. And I think those decisions are made really from a place of just capitalism. I don't know that they're made out of just hatred for fat people, but I think the effect they have on people, and not just fat people, but also people with like physical disabilities, it's just really, really harmful. So things like squeezing as many tables and chairs into a restaurant as possible, like I get it. Like, you're trying to get as many customers as possible, but you're making this space just incredibly inaccessible. And in grocery stores, I think for me, a lot of the issues that come up in grocery stores have to do, again, with words and language and marketing and how food is advertised and where things are displayed. And, you know, of course, if I could just, you know, wave my magic wand, I would also you know, be able to change the prices on things and make things more affordable, but also be able to pay the people who produce the food in the first place a lot better and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a huge, huge topic. One thing I think about a lot in grocery stores is we've all heard that diet culture advice of like only shop the perimeter and avoid the aisles where all the processed food is. And I would just love someone to reorganize the grocery store (laughs) so that like, And I don't even know if it's as simple as like put the fresh food in the middle and the other stuff on the perimeter or what, but like, like there is this hierarchy that we've put into the grocery store and then the way we talk about eating has sort of reinforced and trained us to think of the grocery store as having good and bad aisles. And I think just even in general, like the way we think about things like processed food and, you know, frozen food and stuff like stuff that's incredibly like helpful for so many people for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah, just not demonizing any of these choices. And recognizing they can play a really useful role in people's lives. They can also just be delicious. I'm also honestly so glad you did this talk at that place. I feel the way I feel whenever I hear someone doing this kind of thing in a med school where I'm like, this is what we need. We need this next Mm -hmm. generation of food industry people, of doctors, of healthcare providers thinking about this differently, you know, and starting to challenge this because that's what hasn't happened for so long. Yeah. I remember learning in Aubrey Gordon's book, there was something about with medical students, like there was some study that I think it was like a 15-minute talk about this, like the effect that had just to kind of let people know about this, like totally change the way they view their patients and interact with them. And, you know, you think about like how many hours medical school is, right. <laughs> like right. how many years. And so you think like if someone takes 15 minutes to just kind of break this down in a way that is understandable and yeah, maybe not judgmental, mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. not moralizing, like the impact that can have. So yeah, I think we need to do this in every industry because it happens everywhere. Journalism, for sure, needs this kind of bias training. I see this all the time in science and health journalism where, again, the premise was not questioned. You went into the reporting on the study or the whatever with all these assumptions intact. And so, of course, the headline you're giving us is 
just reiterating fat phobia all over again. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. We need it everywhere. And I am grateful that you are doing the work. I'm grateful to be doing the work with you because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ditto. (laughs) Just totally ditto. Well, we will wrap up with Butter for Your Burnt Toast, my recommendation segment. Julia, what would you like to recommend for us this week? I will just have to shout out the Body Liberation Hiking Club, which I'm a proud member of. It was formerly called the Plus Size Hikers of the Hudson Valley. Alexa, who's wonderful, who runs the group, recently changed the name again to kind of just make that umbrella, Mm -hmm. I think, a little bit bigger. So I know that everyone listening to your podcast probably doesn't necessarily live in the Hudson Valley as both you and I do. So this is a local group. It's awesome. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. We go for hikes all the time, non-judgmental, come as you are. We go slowly. It's great. It's like changed my life. But I also wanted to mention it because even if you can't come to this particular group, groups like this exist. And you can also, if you live somewhere where you can't find that group, you can just start that group. You can. (laughs) Yeah, just like put it up on social media or whatever in your book club, PTA, I don't know, wherever people find out about things. And I just really encourage people to do whatever version of that makes sense. I mean, being outside and hiking isn't for everyone, but it's available for anyone who wants. And being with this group has been just one of the most positive additions to my life and has helped me in all the things we're talking about today. So I just definitely have to shout them out. My fall goal is to come on a hike. I follow, and every time you post your pictures of the hikes or I follow their Instagram too, I'm always like, oh man, I missed another good hike. But once I get these book revisions done, my fall goal is to come on one of these hikes because it just looks delightful. No rush, no worries, and it'll be great whenever you join. And I always bring extra snacks, so if you forget yours, I have some. The odds of me forgetting to pack a snack are like, I mean, I was thinking of our conversation about unapologetic hunger. I don't know if you saw that meme going around that was like, I don't understand people who forget to eat because uh I immediately like forget my own name and, you know, I'm 20 minutes from... That's just never happened to me. Like, Like, I don't... I'm like, I just... I don't get it. I don't... I mean, yeah, Dan sent it to me because it was something like, I'm I'm like, you know, turning on family members. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens (laughs) if we're 30 minutes away from dinner or 30 minutes past dinner time. So yeah, I remember snacks. And speaking of snacks, my butter this week is the tip you gave me about when you have a party and you are serving a cheese plate and you get sad because people don't eat the cheese. And a lot of times it's because of diet culture reasons that they don't eat the cheese. But a practical way to make it easier is to cut up the cheese for the cheese plate. And I did this for a dinner party we had and then also for my book club last week. And people ate so much more cheese, Julia. I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad. I You posted something about that on Instagram and it just made me just... I was like smiling, just just the biggest smile. It was such a good and tip. It's simple, yeah. right? Like it's like this little thing, but it's like, it's those, I don't know. I believe in like, obviously like big systemic changes mm-hmm. and love imagining that. And I also believe so much in the power of like these tiny moments, like for example, cutting up the block of cheese instead of just waiting for someone to start because then everyone just enjoys yeah. it. Yeah. And, and it made me yeah. realize the reason I wasn't doing it more often, it was totally a perfectionist slash diet culture thing of wanting the cheese plate to look like a magazine 
photo shoot. You know, like there's like those sort of very artistic cheese plates you see where they don't cut up the cheese because it's like, I don't know, it's supposed to look more. I don't even know what, why. I don't even mm-hmm. know what the aesthetic mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was striving for. But I was so like, funny. this is so dumb. Sliced cheese can be beautiful. It can totally Crumpled be beautiful. Cheese can be beautiful. It can absolutely yeah. be beautiful. There was no reason to not be cutting up the cheese other than I had some arbitrary aesthetic I was applying to my cheese platter that I had released myself from. Yes, I'm so thrilled you've broken free of this. Cheese plate rules. I just, you know, life is like what happens next to the Instagram picture. It really is. It kind of was this ripple effect then where I started thinking about a lot of the ways I sometimes let perfectionism and these sort of aesthetic goals get in the way of enjoying Mm -hmm. food experiences. And I was like, oh, like, it's okay if I don't have everything laid out the second people arrive. Like, I can still be cut. I don't know. Like, just like, I don't know. Let's blame Martha Stewart. I don't even know. We could go down Mm -hmm. a lot of rabbit holes of like where these rules about entertaining had started to take up space in my brain. But somehow... You know, obviously then with COVID, there was so long period of no entertaining. Now that we're doing more all outdoors, I should know, um, you know, I've been realizing like coming back to it, I can let go of the pieces of it that weren't fun for me in the past because I was making it too hard. Friday night, my parents came to spend the night and yeah, we all took our COVID test. (laughs) I just want to be clear. And I was making dinner and I usually in the past have always, whenever anyone comes to our house... I've always like had everything ready mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> when they come. But now that I'm sort of getting back into it with family and stuff, I didn't have everything ready <laughs> when they came. Like I knew what I was going to make, but I just didn't. I was doing other right, stuff. And right. I was like, I, they're coming here at four o'clock. Like dinner doesn't need to be ready. At four yeah, o'clock. yeah. I mean, we're early birds, but, you know, anyway. So I was making dinner while they were here, which was actually really fun. And then I had, you know, stuff in the mixing bowls. I had mixed it in, that kind of thing. And I, like, I made these ribs, and I had them on, like, the sheet pan. I brought them, you know, outside, you know, Mm -hmm. from the grill on. And then I took out all these serving platters, and I was about to, like, decant everything. (laughs) And then I was like, what are we doing? (laughs) Like, we don't need to wash double the dishes. Like, we don't need to take a photograph of this to put anywhere. Like, I'm just having dinner with my family. And I just threw the sheet pan on the table, you know, the metal mixing yep. bowl. And I was like, this is dinner. And it was great. Right. <laughs> and it was just like this kind of moment of like, why am I making more work? Yeah. Why am I making more labor? Like, let's just enjoy this food. Yeah. And I have to say shout out to Dan because he's been anti-serving bowls for like all of our relationship. <laughs> so he will be feeling very seen by that. He's yes, always like, can't yes. you just put it out? And, and I, you know, and there are times where I just can't. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I need it to be pretty. And I'm going to use serving bowls. We can have both. We can have both. We just, yeah. we don't always have to put it in the, Right, yeah. right. But it's nice to recognize when like <laughs> this is not actually something you care about and you can just let it go. It's so freeing. Yeah, so, totally, totally. I love it. Julia, thank you so much. I could talk to you for many more hours, but we should wrap up. Um, yeah, no, this was so, <laughs> so great. I feel like I could record many episodes with you. So. Well, we'll do it again sometime. Just to remind folks where they can find you and support your work. Sure. My Instagram handle is just my last name, Tertian, T-U-R-S-H-E-N. And then my website is just my name, juliatertian.com. And that has everything about my cookbooks, my cooking classes I teach, which I do every Sunday, all that kind of stuff, my podcasts. Everything is there. So, yeah, just head there. I think that's the best place. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was a pleasure. 
Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks. You get to be part of the very cool Burnt Toast community and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.